0: This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. If you want more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we have a special edition of Spectrum. We're going to try to break down the Trump administration's actions against climate change into plain English that everyone can understand. To help us do that, we'll be talking with Dr. Jeffrey DeBelco. Dr. Debelko is professor and director of the Environmental Studies Program at the George Foynevich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. For 15 years prior to that, he served as director of the Environmental Change and Security Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., he continues to work as a senior advisor to the Wilson Center, where he works with policymakers, practitioners, and scholars, grappling with the complex connections that link environment, health, population, conflict, and security. Dr. Debelko you're an expert on climate change, head an environmental science program, so we're going to rely on you to break down what's going on in the federal government, basically what's going on in the battle of executive orders. Uh, we had uh, under President Obama a series of executive orders that promoted clear, uh, clean energy, uh, gave incentives to people to look at wind and, and solar. Uh, among other things, uh, eliminate carbon carbon dioxide, but just recently, within the last week or so, we've seen President Trump sign an executive order that nullified President Obama's climate change order, and there was a a quote that uh, the New York Times had. From President Trump and when he was signing the order, he turned around to a bunch of coal miners and said, come on, fellows, you know what this is, you know what this says, you're going back to work. So it seems like the Trump administration is framing the climate change issues as being back-to-work orders for coal miners and others in the traditional energy uh, fields uh, in in this country. Break this down for us. I mean I gave a 30,000-foot overview, but what, the, what does all this mean to the average American, to Joe and Sally Smith sitting in Indiana?
1: Well – it is, a, it is a complex story because there are lots of moving parts, but I think at the end of the day, um, the reversal of a variety of executive order actions taken by President Obama, where President Trump has overturned them, um, uh, assumes that uh, economics and environmental protection are at odds, always. And in fact, um, I think we are finding uh, more and more the case that, uh, in fact, it's economically um, productive to take climate action or environmental action. And so I think ultimately these steps back on um, a transition to renewable or cleaner energy uh, and reducing uh, controls on, on pollution, carbon dioxide pollution, will make uh, the American public less safe and more vulnerable to the impacts of of climate change, flooding, heat, um, the kind of extreme weather events. I think it will make them uh, and us less economically competitive because we won't be developing those energy technologies of the 21st century. We'll be hearkening back to the 20th century uh, fossil fuels that, uh, in fact – um, those jobs really aren't coming back. And it's, they're not coming back because of other reasons, not environmental pollution controls and the Clean Power Plan. Other um, economic reasons. Automation. Yeah. It takes fewer people to mine coal, particularly as we transition to uh, easier to access and cleaner coal from Wyoming and Montana than uh, underground coal mining in Appalachia. Um, and uh, that that will be... Um, that those jobs won't come back. That automation and then also the cheap price of natural gas. So there's a cleaner, more efficient, cheaper alternative to coal. So it is economics, uh, but the economics run against uh, against con- uh, the coal industry. And so President Trump cannot control those equations.
0: So it, it seems to me that uh, – let me rephrase this – that it may be a short-term – economic gain to a very small fraction of our society. But long term, it it may be an economic detriment because we're not competing in the global field of advancements in energy.
1: I think that's even optimistic. I think it is a potential – financial benefit to a small number of mine owners, coal mine owners, not the workers per se, and it's about 70,000 jobs associated with the coal industry. So that has been dramatically shrinking even as as the amount of coal mined has increased, again for these long-term trends of automation and, and then more recently competitive uh, alternative uh, fuels, both in renewable but particularly natural gas. Um, and I think the, the economic costs will, will also be immediate. So if we're not regulating um, uh, coal-fired uh, power plant emissions at, at the rates that we were before, that's going to incur very specific and um, countable costs in health, what that means for asthma, what that means for respiratory um, disease, that's a health burden that will come back. We've had experience with this uh, and and we understand. And in fact, they're very uh, kind of precise assessments of what that financial burden of the health burden that will come with this deregulation of, uh, of coal, particularly coal-fired power plants. Um, and I think it will also come at an economic cost because we will underdevelop and uh, disincentivize Uh, that transition to renewables, which the rest of the world is racing ahead on in many respects, and they're going to beat us to the marketplace in deploying those technologies, and we'll be buying Chinese solar panels instead of American-made solar panels in in some sense. There is a robust renewable energy uh, market in this country. Uh, We're not making it any easier for that sector, a sector that now employs far more people than than the coal industry does for sure. So let me give you another
0: quote from the New York Times article, and this was back on March 28th. Uh, The headline was Trump Signs Executive Order Unwinding Obama Climate Policies. But this one paragraph briefly says, Mr. Trump made clear that the United States had no intention of meeting the commitments that his predecessor had made to curb planet warming, carbon dioxide pollution, comma, turning denials of climate change into national policy. Now that, that's a pretty bold statement to be in a straight news article. It wasn't a, an editorial. Talk talk about that. Is is that true? That this turned denial of climate change into national policy?
1: Uh, You may be able to find one or two other heads of state and governments that have as their policy a uh, climate skeptic, climate denial perspective. But the United States stands alone and particularly important given our uh, enormous footprint in terms of producing carbon dioxide and producing greenhouse gas emissions um, and the importance of our leadership role in that. And so stepping back – in terms of even to the point of doubting the science, which I should say is important to distinguish between debates on the science and debates on the policy responses. Because there are lots of uh, well-intentioned, smart people trying to tackle this who have different policy options for dealing with it. Um, And we, we should really have an active debate about what works and what doesn't. However, debating the science is is in fact a, a practical strategy of trying to sow doubt so that you don't get action. But uh, the the science is, um, despite the suggestions, really about observable, objective impacts that um, that, as much as we'd like to wish them away, uh, are are with us and increasingly occurring at rates faster um in the what's uncertain are some of these unexpected impacts and how much it's manifesting itself in ways that really matter for our economy for our health of humans health of the ecosystem um, and the momentum of that heating heat trapping effect that is going to um, build that into our future whether uh, we make changes now or not it's 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 uh, it's going to happen and um, it's in some ways, if we are to look for response and encouragement, it's that those who are governing uh, on the ground, so to speak, governors and mayors, are experiencing these changes. And in fact, historically, where leadership on environmental issues have come from in the United States. And so there are people taking leadership at state and local levels, uh, particularly notable vis-a-vis what, how the... Trump actions play out will be California, because the governor and the legislature and the populace of California has a very different view than what is now uh, uh, coming out of the White House. And so um, that matters uh, in those what will become legal battles, but also in terms of scale. California is the sixth largest economy in the world. And so uh, President Trump can reduce the fuel efficiency standards as he has that the president obama uh, raised but if you're a detroit automaker decision maker do you really want to move back in ways that you won't your cars won't have access to 10% of the automobile market in the united states which is california alone plus um, the 13 other states that are Adopting those higher standards,
0: Governor Brown very uh, aggressive in California uh, uh, in advancing the environmental issues. New York also stands out, and the New York Attorney General is, has already said that uh, legal action will be forthcoming uh, on on this, and he's probably not alone.
1: No, that's right, and I think uh, I think we can count on probably at least thirteen to fifteen. 15- um, states that will adopt, shall we say, uh, policies that are in line with the directions of the Obama administration and uh, opposed to the steps back, as they would see it, of the Trump administration. And we certainly can expect those those fights to play out in the legal context, but also for those states to march ahead and um, demonstrate the utility of developing, for example, a strong renewable sector in terms of how it lowers our dependence on on uh, dirty fossil fuels that create those pollution problems, that provides opportunity in developing a, a dynamic economy that will actually hire more people um, and will be a driver uh, of economic positives, allow them to be competitive internationally as the rest of the world moves in this direction, um, and, and uh, makes them less vulnerable. If, if you are a local water manager at a city or a county level, you cannot look backwards at water data for the past 50 years to figure out what kind of water treatment plant or water anything that you're building, designing for what at least should be a 50, 100 year time frame. Because the future is not going to look like the past in terms of how much water you get, when you get it. And such, And so to be responsible decision-maker on a local level now means that, ev- that you have to look at what is changing and how climate impacts will affect uh, the hardware and the software of governance and, and our communities. But But
0: what I hear you say, and you say 13 to 15 states may advance more the President Obama program than the President Trump uh, uh, rescission. Uh, program. But as as just a, a layperson, that tells me that we're going to have a patchwork of different regulations, different uh, uh, incentives, different economies uh, around the country in, in different states, whereas it seems an argument could be made that climate change is something that's global, certainly, but is something that covers the whole country. So instead of having a federal policy covering the whole country, we're going to have a patchwork of states which may advance that particular state, but the neighboring state may be regressive in that regard. Do I have it right?
1: Yes. No, absolutely. I think where that differentiation comes in may be in the ability to reap a state Capture the benefits of moving into renewable energy technologies or not, all the states will be vulnerable to the climate impacts that will be um, more severe because we're not all taking steps to to bend the curve, so to speak, on uh, on emissions and reduce our, our our greenhouse gas emissions. However, it really um, those those who integrate climate change considerations into their planning will have more resilient. Physical infrastructure, uh, more resilient coping strategies in terms of how it connects to health, uh, how it connects to economics, how it connects to our food security, and what it means for our farmers. Um, and so, their states can distinguish themselves with with. Um, their readiness for adapting to these changes that are coming. So absolutely it is not optimal and absolutely there will be differential impacts uh, as much as uh, states and localities take these into, into account. And I think we'll also find states partnering with uh, overseas countries, with other countries in ways that uh, wasn't necessarily the case before to try to reap some of those benefits. We'll be back after this
0: short message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's game research and immersive design lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Two other areas I want to ask you about, uh, Dr. DeBelko. One one is the the, um, Paris Accord or the Paris Agreement. Uh, uh, First of all, I'd like for you to describe that for people that that they hear it, but I'm not sure that they understand it. Uh, After you do that, it seems that what President Trump has said so far is he hasn't said that we're going to pull out of the agreement, but the implication is very strong that we're not going to comply with with the agreement. Talk about that.
1: Mm-hmm. So the, the Paris Agreement is a shorthand for what has been a process, an original treaty signed in 1992 by President George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, in Rio de Janeiro, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And every year, the parties to that convention come together to reevaluate what they have agreed to and often try to make those uh, take greater steps to address the problem. And so Paris in uh, December of 2015 was a very important moment where countries um, came forward with a different approach um than they had been before before they were trying to come up with legally targeted uh, uh, targets and and timetables for reducing emissions. this time it was a uh, almost a competition to see who could be most innovative and in how they 're going to reduce emissions and uh, one where the american government u s government and the Chinese government got out early and aggressively and ambitiously and set a high bar that many other countries came to um, came to the table. Um, What um, President Trump has indicated is that he's not going to, at least not yet, formally pull out of that. And that is not like an executive order, a quick process. It would be at least a four-year process for the U.S. to formally pull itself out. However, one can step back in terms of the funds that are provided, because there were funds promised, um, and exhibiting leadership and um, bringing that innovation to the table. Um, one might think the other countries uh, would say, well, fooey, if the Americans aren't going to do it, we're not going to play either. Uh, but in fact, that hasn't yet been the case. And in fact, um, the Chinese government has uh, quite purposefully stepped into the breach, the leadership um The leadership breach, the lack of leadership presented by the United States, and said this is such an important issue to our economy, to the health of the people, and frankly, they wouldn't put it this way, but to the stability of the regime in China. Um, If a rising middle class in China cannot send their kids outside because the air quality is so bad because of coal fired power plants and, and particulate pollution, that's a problem for the politics of that of that government.
0: And and I understand uh, India is is number three, and they've done the same thing as China.
1: They they are. They've been they've been slower to the slower to take that aggressive step. They historically had kind of said, you know, you wealthy Western countries cause this problem. You need to pay us to solve our problem. Whereas the Chinese saw the economic opportunity and as well as the economic risk and the health risk, but they are uh, making that turn Transition to doing it um, uh, as well, and critically important in terms of the size of the population and the particularly potential for um, consumption and the fact they have very large coal holdings. Uh, I've
0: also heard that countries like France and other countries are are coming out and saying, okay, America, you want to do this? Uh, Okay, Uh, we're going to step up and, and take. part of that economic pie that that you were going to have.
1: Absolutely. The French are an interesting case because they made a bet on, on nuclear power and are heavily dr- dr- driven by nuclear, which is a little unusual compared to others. But certainly the Europeans are happy to step in particularly to the marketplace of renewables and, and reap that economic benefit from dominating a, a, um, a technology-driven, innovation-driven economy um, that also... Uh, lowers costs ultimately over time, lowers vulnerability. So if we're going to have more extreme weather events, and your distributed sources of energy are less fragile, uh, which is often the case with renewables, then you're that's less time offline. This is where, for example, the U.S. military saw this logic of, you know, if our base is powered with redundant energy systems that include a windmill and solar panels, if the wider grid goes down, we still have a way to keep running. And we have to have a way to keep running. And so that uh, transition to diversifying, including with renewables, their energy sources, was actually something they felt increased the resilience of their ability to operate, something that um, some uh, other civilian entities have have recognized but in fact, runs counter to these new changes. The other thing I wanted to ask you is that
0: I understand the executive order ordered the EPA to start a process to rewrite regulations relating to the clean power plan uh, that essentially closed uh, coal-fired power plants, froze construction on on new ones, uh, among other things. Uh, but I understand that, as you said, the Paris uh, Agreement would be a long process. This would be a, a long process as well, going through and
1: dismantling the Clean Power Plan. It, 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 is that correct? I think it is. However, I think it will be really interesting to see whether the—we'll find out whether it was a larger set of economic factors— that were determining the utility of those particularly old coal-fired power plants um, or whether it was these regulations and perceived to be, quote-unquote, the job-killing climate regulations of the Obama administration. Because that transition away from very capital-intensive, very large, and very old um, coal-fired power plants, when you have the cheaper, cleaner natural gas source, as long as the natural gas stays cheaper – Why on earth as an energy company would you move to building a new coal-fired power plant from a strictly economic decision that may also be reversed with a a future administration where the costs of carbon start being absorbed too into the equation and makes those coal-fired power plants even more expensive? So I think it may help some of the current owners in the short term, but you see major energy companies really – Voting with their dollars in terms of what infrastructure they are building, what they aren't, or in some cases, uh, American Electric Power moving out of the power generation business altogether and becoming about delivery because of, in part, the the economics of uh, of these. But yes, the, the unraveling, unraveling the statutory and regulatory uh, history is not an overnight process, one that will inevitably be challenged in the courts, which will take a long time. Um, it's certainly, uh, it's not to minimize the impacts that these changes have, uh, but they won't be overnight in part because of the processes and also in part because of these different nodes of innovation and action at the state and local levels. So I've been asking my question
0: sort of as the everyman out there, but you're the expert. What am I missing? What What should the American public be looking at that we may not have talked about yet?
1: Well, I think at the heart of this, it is the need to make a transition from thinking of climate change and its impacts and our responses to it as a single sector that is the responsibility of those climate people or those energy people Instead of, this is a overall context that is central to how we live our lives, where we live, how we live, how we consume, and um, that it is something that has meaning for everyone and will affect everyone in differential ways. And we'll have different ways of coping, but it is about uh, change and transition We've had multiple changes over time that were fundamental to industries that we couldn't imagine would ever go away. Uh, That's in communications in transportation and such. Um, And this in terms of fuel sources is going to be another one of those transitions. And so change is difficult, but part of it uh, is is finding a way to understand – the important economic arguments, environmental arguments, but also I think what we all have neglected, including those focusing on on climate change, is what it means in terms of behavior change and and kind of our sense of identity. I mean, this bring the coal jobs back was is really at the heart a cultural and identity argument. I think you will find many who understand what automation and cheap natural gas have meant for employment in the coal sector, yet are so desperate for For redress of this sense of identity, that they're willing to take a take a chance on on leadership that says we're we're gonna we're gonna respect that culture and bring it back, even if that seems to be a long shot. And so, uh, in that sense, understanding the what it means for us day to day, and this isn't something that is longer term exotic impacts the Arctic and polar bears, but in fact, has very real implications for all of us is, is what we often forget.
0: Jeff, thank you, as always, for coming in and, and helping us understand this complicated issue. I hope that, that you'll come back and, and join us again as we go along this this path of, of deconstruction.
1: Absolutely, Tom. Thanks, Thanks so much.
0: Today, we talked with Dr. Jeffrey DeBelco a professor and director of the Environmental Studies Program at the George Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.